Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything the Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. Hello and welcome to B2B Better. My name is Jason Bradwell and on each episode I talk about how companies can use marketing to navigate big moments of change. Whether this is gearing up for a new funding round, launching a new product, pivoting in response to market trends or sitting on either side of an acquisition, I break down modern day B2B marketing strategies into actionable advice with guests who've seen it all before. Let me help you be better than boring. Let's go. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Isabel Papulius, who is CMO of Mediafly. How are you doing? Great. It's Friday. Happy Friday. We're recording on a Friday. We are recording on a Friday, which I think can sometimes be a good thing and a bad thing. Good thing. People feel a little bit more loose. Bad thing. Your mind could be a little bit fried, but I'm sure we're going to have a great 30 minutes. (laughs) I'll try to, to not be too fried, I promise. Excellent. So tell me a little bit about you and what you do at Mediafly. Yeah, sorry. So I'm the CMO of Mediafly. I, I consider myself what people refer to often as a full stack uh, CMO, right, from a marketing side of things, meaning um, responsible ultimately for everything from awareness to mid-funnel, you know, demand generation to post-sale customer marketing and, and everything in between, including the sales enablement function Mediafly, as well as the business development function, which is the SDRs. And then outside of the, the marketing, what I call like the pure marketing or ING piece of the CMO responsibility. I'm uh, very involved with go-to-market strategy, right? So involved in uh, broader enterprise-wide initiatives, go-to-market strategy, business strategy in general, even things like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion from the the company uh, champion internally, uh, and of course, uh, a lot of acquisitions. So unlike any other marketer in the world, you have quite a lot on your plate. And that's exactly none of us do, right? None of us do, right? <laughs> we're, just, we're just picking our nose all day. I it, know. Exactly. Or as my uncle calls us, the department that plays with the crayons. Some crafts, yes, yes. Yeah. He works in sales, so you can you can see where oh, that's I going. Now. Yeah. <laughs> we like we like sales. We get along. Exactly, exactly. And you've been at MediaFly for a number of years, right? It's yeah, I've been, been at MediaFly for uh, five years, almost to to the date, although not always in marketing and uh, not always as a CMO. I started in sales, actually. Uh, 
And I was asked for a variety of reasons to step in nearly overnight, actually, and take over marketing and build the marketing engine from the ground up. So at the time uh, when I started, uh, we, we had four people on my team. We're now 30, understandably, many of those, like I said, are sales enablement, all the, 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 the large team of SDRs and so on. But just to give you a level of growth, we were, I think, around 40 people when I started and we're now 201 to be exact. So... It's the typical startup hyper growth environment where I feel like I've had nine lives in five years, right? Because as the company grows really fast and evolves, it almost feels like you're working for a different company every year. And of course, you might be the marketing lead and you might have a CMO title, but you're not the same CMO year over year. And so I, to finish the progression, so I, I moved from sales to, to marketing. I was VP of marketing for a while and the uh, promoted to CMO. So my first time CMO, Media Flight. It's been, it's been just a wild ride and probably the best experience of my entire career. Without wanting to offend my previous employers, I've had a fantastic career before Media Flight, but this has been epic. That, that's really great to hear. And a big part of that growth and variety in your role has been, I think, four, at least four acquisitions mm-hmm. by Media Fly of, mm-hmm. of other organizations. And that's what we're here to talk about today is how, as a marketing lead, you've navigated those kind of situations where you've been integrating a new company's marketing uh, or new company into your organization and the effects on the marketing strategy that has had. So tell me a little bit about the story leading up to the acquisition. I think of your not most recent acquisition, but the one before that, if I'm not mistaken, a company called iPresent. That's correct. So we've had, I believe it's four acquisitions in three years, if I'm not mistaken. I think I need to give the story of Mediafly a little bit uh, for greater context, right? So Mediafly is a, is a revenue enablement and now revenue enablement intelligence, intelligence uh, platform as a result of our very last acquisition. We do what we do ultimately because we want to give sellers and, and revenue teams more broadly more control really of the buyer journey to get buyers to yes in a more linear and quicker way, right? I think we all know that more and more the buyer really has more control than the seller these days. So much of the engagement is happening digitally, depending on who you ask. You get different stats, but let, let, typically it's 85% of the buyer journeys is done outside of a sales meeting, right? So how do we help organizations better engage buyers effectively across every part of the journey from beginning all the way to post-sale even, right? Because even after you you get the buyer's attention, you prove your business case, you close the deal, you have them as a client, you're still selling after that. I mean, you have to grow the relationship and make it sticky, right? So ultimately it's about making revenue teams effective to drive more revenue, right? And and the way uh, really the Media Fly Adventure started, and that was before my time, started more traditional, let's call it more traditional sales enablement capabilities around content management, right? Typically when people think of sales enablement, they think content management, and maybe some learning management systems baked into that. But at the core, the onset, it tends to be about content management. And so the way, and Mediafly started to work with media companies. So what was happening at the time, that was before my time, but I've heard this from our CEO, Carson Conan, was media companies were using our, at the time, our content management platform to serve their content to distributors, right? And... Also to, to their upfronts, right? So the upfronts are the annual events that media companies do to, to add agencies to the folks that are buying the time, the media time, right? And their shows. And that experience needed to be pretty so visually pretty sophisticated and engaging, 
right? Because that's what media companies are used to. And so somewhere in that evolution, our, our CEO felt, well, if I'm doing this for media companies, why am I not expanding into other industries as well? And then through that prospect, through that process, realizing that really the way B2B companies engage with their buyers is actually pretty boring, right? Most of us are on the, if you just, I put myself in the shoes, uh, if I, I put my buyer hat on and I'm sitting in a demo uh, conversation, I'm usually getting pitch slapped. Yes. Someone is showing up with a 50 point, uh, 50 page PowerPoint deck. It's completely linear. It's big. It's all about them. And I can demo type of thing, right? Whereas if you think about our experience, especially in our experiences as, as consumer, B2C companies have, have done a better job elevating that engagement with a buyer, right? You're spending the weekend on apps like Netflix or Pandora, and you're getting a, a highly custom recommendations and it's you're clicking here and everything looks good. And it's, a, it's an engaging and exciting experience. And then you show up at work on Monday and whether you're a buyer or a seller, most of the time you're engaging in a really boring way, right? Like, so our vision evolved towards, okay, well, how do we make understanding that content is still at the core of what we do? And how do we make that content engagement experience more and more interactive, more and more personalized and more engaging so that ultimately we win more, right? I mean, we enable our, our customers, sellers and revenue teams more broadly to to win more often because they're giving buyers the experience that the buyers want. And so we started to make acquisitions to level up that le the engagement and the, the interactivity and the personalization of that engagement. Right? And so the, the first one was the acquisition of Alinean, which was the leader in value selling tools like ROI calculators, benchmarking tool tools, and so on that help sellers in a very interactive and engaging way during a meeting, quantify the value of their of what they're trying to sell to build a business case, to help the buyer build a business case leading to a close, right? So we started with the acquisition of Alinea and then the, the second acquisition, which is I know is the one you, you're interested in discussing today was iPresent, which is actually a UK-based company. So not too far from you, it's outside of London. Uh, and the motivation behind the acquisition of iPresent was in part to enhance our product in a big way, always towards this vision of more interactivity, higher personalization and so on, right? That iPresent had cap uh, capabilities that our platform didn't have. For, for example, at a very basic level, they were able to support highly interactive formats that we were not able to support. So for, so let's say, for example, you could upload a PowerPoint, a highly animated PowerPoint deck onto the Mediafly platform at the time, and then you would lose all the interactivity. Or we weren't able to support videos and things like that, right? So I present brought a lot of that, and our aspiration was, well, we're going to ingest a lot of those capabilities into the core MediaFly product, and then we'll merge the two, right? And then on a go-to-market side of things, it was very much that acquisition. That acquisition was very much about TAM expansion. Now I'm going to come back to that for a second, but to give you the the remaining story of our acquisitions, because I do want to touch on that. So acquisition number three was Presentify, also a UK-based company. That's a visual storytelling company that creates highly interactive content that is very much stackable and appified. So at that point, we had not only the technology to support and create a highly, a great content engagement experience, very interactive, but we're also building content that was working well within the app. So you got the best of both worlds, right? Typically, companies create content over here on the left, and then they have 
they serve the content over here on the right, but they're really not building one for the other. So you're getting the best of both worlds. And then the, the last acquisition we just made, we completed a few weeks ago, is the acquisition of Insight Squared, which is a leader uh, who is a leader in revenue intelligence. And the reason for that is because we believe that the market is moving more and more towards data and data that uh, revenue leaders need to, to use to be able to drive sales effectiveness and ultimately results. And we believe that enablement and intelligence, when they come together, can create a very powerful revenue engine. Because then what happens is the intelligence that you have around all the revenue data, all the signals of how is an opportunity engaging with your content? How, what kind of intent, buying signals are they sending out there? Conversational intelligence, all those things. Once you understand that data, that actually drives your enablement efforts. Then you can, if you understand what works, you can coach and guide your teams to do more of what works. That's the enablement piece, right? And you have the technology and the tools to do that better. The better you enable your teams, the more actions they take, the more actions feed into the intelligence. So the intelligence informs the enablement, informs intelligence. And, and you, again, you get the best of both worlds. So that's, that's how we're thinking about things now. And Mediafly is the only company, uh, thanks to this last acquisition, that can really bridge intelligence and enablement together. But back to I present. So the TAM expansion piece, we talked about the product opportunity. The TAM expansion really came from the fact that at the time, Mediafly was seen as a very premium, highly sophisticated enablement solution for the early adopters the, and the enterprise, the companies that had really embraced digital transformation as a way to reinvent their sales, to improve sales effectiveness. And, but the reality is we, we had come to a point where there's only so many, uh, there's only so many early adopters, right? You can get, and so it's, it was a, a bit of a, I guess it was a classic crossing the chasm um, challenge, right? So we wanted to be able to reach out to the masses and go more down market. And what, and I present their core customer base and who they were successful with were, were actually SMBs, right? We were doing really well in enterprise, they were doing really well in SMBs. And so we saw it as an opportunity for a TAM expansion, bringing the two, the two together. And additionally, iPresent had uh, a self-serve offering that worked very well with smaller companies. And that uh, was something at the time that due to the complexity of the MediaFly platform, it wasn't something that we felt we could deliver, right? Our offering was very, you needed the consultative sale, it took a long time. It was priced under premium. So does that set the context well, or do you have questions? No, that absolutely sets the context well. I want to zoom out a little bit, but before I zoom out, I'm going to zoom in and ask you from a kind of positioning perspective, when it came to actually announcing the acquisition, was any kind of thought given to the messaging around what gap the acquisition was filling for the market versus the gap the acquisition was making for Mediafly. And what I mean by that is you're making this acquisition, as you said, to fill a product gap, to increase your TAM, to ultimately make more business, which is great for Mediafly and will do that and clearly has done that. But when you're messaging that to the market and to your customers, how do you switch it around and what are you saying mm -hmm. to make it about them? 
if that makes sense. I, I love that question. Absolutely. So we, we thought about it the other way around. We had to in order to message it, right? We knew we wanted to de-risk the investment into sales enablement. We knew that both quantitatively and qualitatively and anecdotally from my own, our own interactions with, with prospects that companies had a lot of trepidation getting into sales enablement technology. They recognized the need, right? They knew that given the state of the B2B interaction between buyer and seller, that B2B selling was getting harder than ever. They knew that they couldn't they needed to enable their teams better for the new world, so to speak, but they were afraid of the time commitment. They were afraid of the, the change management that it would require. They were afraid of the financial commitment. And frankly, many of them had been burned by CRM, mm -hmm. right? CRM at the origin was the, even today, when I think a lot of folks, when they think about enablement, CRM is the first thing they, they think about, right? Uh, it was a precursor to all of this and CRM, Clearly, is we all need it, right? This can't live with it, can't live without it. But we all know the challenges with that, and as sales reps always struggle with CRM adoption, right? It's a manage, it's a manager's tool more than more than an end user. So, absolutely, there were a lot of barriers. So for us, it was about de-risking it and making it easier. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense because I, you know, I have seen this before with acquisitions being made where you see the press release and it's clearly been written with the mindset of here's how this helps me as the organization and here's going to here's how it's going to fill the gap and for me that's always been somewhat off putting particularly if I'm a potential customer of the of that company in question because it's classic marketing 101 i want to know what the benefits are for me as the end user coming back to the acquisition more broadly you've outlined the business goals going into the acquisition with ipresent uh what were your marketing objectives? I've been on the other side of the table and we've talked about this a little bit before we started recording of being and working for a company that was acquired by another organization where the objectives have been almost, well, they've been handed down to me. Here's what we need to achieve. And usually it's centered around PR. We want to make a big splash. We want to make sure everyone knows about this. What was the kind of process for you and for your leadership team in assigning those marketing goals around the acquisition and, and what were they? So our goals are never changed radically in that our marketing goals ultimately are always about pipeline generation and ultimately revenue. Yes, we look at awareness to the extent that we measure share of voice really through PR. We, we don't have a sophisticated brand tracker in place or anything like that. It's uh, it's PR share of voice. And so absolutely we're monitoring the, the share of voice increases during that time. But ultimately back to the business objective, the marketing objective was tied to that. Is are we increasing demand as a result of exceeding, uh, of expanding the TAM and, and going down market? And are uh, we generating more pipeline? And is pipeline with the ideal customer you know profile? Is it are we getting more from the folks that we want to buy from us? And talk me through the approach that you adopted around the acquisition to make sure that you were you were doing that. What kind of channels or tactics were you activating? And what did the strategy look like? And importantly, how were you measuring that this announcement, this acquisition was increasing the pipeline for MediaFly? Yes. yes. So I would say the biggest thing about the marketing strategy and activation around this acquisition was the fact that we truly approached it as a campaign a holistic 360 all-channel campaign anchored on a creative idea. We hadn't done that with the first acquisition. So the campaign idea 
and the campaign itself was around the, the message of sales enablement for all. It was the notion of democratizing sales enablement. So back to you know, your question on the barriers for the market, what we're seeing is we wanted to de-risk it. People were, wanted to get into sales enablement, but, but were hesitant. So it was now it's democratization is you don't have to be the, the massive, the big whale, the big sophisticated enterprise. Uh, it, now you miss smaller company, you can have that too, right? And of course we unpack that, you know, in the messaging uh, to hit on all the right points. And it was absolutely a 360 campaign. So digital search and, and um, display, social PR, our SDR team was around with the right, the right messaging for outreach and so on. I would say, the other thing I'd like to say here, the, the, this takes me back, the campaign development, right? This notion of this is, we need this to be big and we need this to be truly thought through. It's something that we didn't realize until a month before we had to make the announcement. And the reason for that is, and this is one of the big learnings for me from that time is acquisitions usually happen very quickly for a variety of reasons, right? You're keeping things under wrap, but you kind of want to make the deal when you want to strike when it's hot and when both parties are interested and you don't want someone else to sue, to come in and, and so on. So there's just a lot going on mm. and information, the proper go-to-market discuss, strategic discussions that need to happen within the C-suite don't always happen the right way. And it's not because people are not smart or that they want it. It's just everyone is, is running around 150 miles a minute or whatever the expression is. And we hadn't realized, I think, as a team that how, how beyond the products, enhancements and all that, how truly transformative to the market this acquisition could be, not just to media fly, but to the market, right? We were at that point, Going back to your question, we were, I think, too media fly centric, not, had not thought about the market um, as much as we, we, we could have. And when we started do, doing that, we realized, wow, this is really big, not just for us, but for the entire market. So we need to message this in a big way. We shouldn't just follow the, our past acquisition playbook. And I know we did these five things and there was a blog and a press release, check, check the box, right? Mm -hmm. And we didn't come to this realization until a month prior to the announcement. And then, and then we changed direction creatively two weeks before. So it was a very hectic time. And the learning for me as a CMO it, what, at the time was I needed to, and to do, I should have done a much better job asking all the right go-to-market questions from our CEO, right? to help him articu truly articulate the why and his vision behind this acquisition. <clears throat> and in fact, I'll share a funny anecdote here. I'm sure Carson won't mind me sharing this, but you know, things got, because things were moving so quickly, there's a lot of tension and communication doesn't really flow well in both directions. And I remember there was a lot of friction between him and I, and we met in the office on a Monday morning. I, I had intended to reach out to him and say, okay, we need to, the way we're communicating right now is not working, right? We're passing each other like ships in the night and we're not working effectively. And to his credit, he reached out to me first. He pulls me in a conference room and he says to me, 
So how frustrated are you with me on a scale of one to 10? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, 15. <laughs> Brave. <laughs> and, and to his credit, how many CEOs do you, do you think would take the time to do that, right? I mean, that, and that says everything about him and who he is as a person and the type of leader he is. And there's a humanity to how he leads and a humanity to the media fly culture as a result, but that's a whole other conversation. So my point is, it was a pivotal moment, I think, for us as a company in terms of we, we really need to think about the go-to-market strategy well before we get into these things. But more importantly, my relationship between Car- with, with Carson, and I know he, he feels the same way, right? It was pivotal in terms of how we should communicate uh, the types of information that I need from him, the types of questions we should be asking him. And then it's uh, right. So we, we evolved from there. I think you touch on something which applies to a lot of situations that organizations go through in that part of a marketing team's role and particularly the CMO or marketing lead, you know, is to be in the room to ask those tough questions, right? And despite how crazy things can get and over this acquisition um, that you've got hanging over you, there's also the thing, there's also the a potential that it all may just fall through. So you're putting in all this work and right up until the last minute, until that contract signed for the most, it could all be for naught. I've certainly been in that situation before planning a huge campaign that a couple of weeks before it was due to launch, it all just came crashing down. But I think taking the time to ask those tough questions, the why are we doing this? And it's not enough just for us to know as a leadership team or as an organization, we need to be able to articulate that to the market and make sure that, as you said, our SDRs are in a position to communicate and articulate that to the market is going to make or break how successful from a marketing standpoint, at least this acquisition is going to be because we get one shot to strike while the iron's hot. And if we don't take the time to think about this, we're going to miss our opportunity. How involved were the incoming organization, the company that you were acquiring, I present, how involved were their marketing team, if indeed they even had one, in helping you define that strategy? And what kind of tips could you give to someone listening to this question in terms of managing that relationship? Because we were talking a little bit before we started recording. It's a highly emotionally charged situation when a company is acquiring another one at all levels were they involved and then how were you managing that dynamic yeah when that depends on really that relationship of how the collaboration between the 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 two marketing teams right from both sides there is really dependent also on how big or small is the company that you're acquiring and how sophisticated is their marketing team if they even have had one, right? So in this case, it was a very small team and it was primarily a team of, of designers, but they were, they were engaged in the context of, first of all, we were already integrating the two companies at the same time as we're announcing. And to the extent that they know their product, right? And their business and their customer better than we do, right? Because again, they're bringing from the product side, a level of UI, sophistication, interactivity, and so on that we didn't have. They're working with SMBs or not. So they're informing, they're improving our knowledge of, of the market that way. And we're, you know, improving theirs. So that would say that's how I would describe it. So we were leading the, uh, the campaign and the announcement, but we were, they were a part of it to the extent that they were making us smarter to be able to build a more effective message. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100% makes sense. What were the results of the campaign in the end? How successful was the, uh, the launch of the acquisition? So this is interesting. So the campaign was too successful and the, uh, the strategy blew up in our face is how I would describe it. 
Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's my point of view. And this goes back to go-to-market, right? To properly flushing out all the elements of the go-to-market strategy. So here's what happened. Everyone came. Everyone clicked on the ads and engaged with us and wanted to talk to Mediafly and see a demo. Except that, obviously, I'm exaggerating, right? But what, what I mean by that is companies big and small and very small. Except... What we hadn't factored into the go-to-market was we as an organization at the time, we're still pretty small. I don't know what we were, maybe 70 people. We had a very small sales team and we had a very small customer success team. And by very small, I mean less than 10, right? Like four or five people. Hmm. So we didn't have the capacity to take on all these new customers because a very small company with, with a 10 users, I'm, I'm, let's just say, is going to require the same amount of handholding to, to implement and, and launch than a company with 300 or 1,000 users. Because you're, you're, you never start with 1,000 anyway. It's usually you start small and grow, right? We didn't have a capacity to handle all of this. So that's what I mean by the strategy backfired, right? In some ways, in marketing, in some ways, you can say the strategy was... The, the, the execution of the strategy was flawless. Marketing delivered really well on the execution of the strategy. In hindsight, the strategy was probably flawed. Mm. It shouldn't have gone uh, that far down market. And so that then led to re-evaluation of our ICP. What do we really want our ICP to be? Going back and doing an analysis of starting with our best, most delighted customers. You know, these are truly the best and the most delighted. And by that, we're a combined organization, right, with AppResent. So we're looking at the AppResent customer base too. Then what, how do we go get more of those? Mm. Are those the one that we want? So it, it forced more rigor moving and forward. In the... Would you have done anything differently? in regards to executing a highly successful marketing campaign that was deemed not too successful? From a, not from a pure marketing execution standpoint, not at all. The thing I would have done more dif uh, 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 differently, I would have been, again, the asking the right questions, extracting the CEO's vision by asking the right question and getting the entire leadership team to, to think about all the different levels of the go-to market and, and everyone marching to the same drumbeat, right? I guess that the tricky thing is identifying when is the right time to have those kind of conversations. I was just about to say that, right? The challenge is, and I think will always remain, that you, you never have enough time to do this. Mm. In my, well, I mean, in my, you never have as much time as you would like to do it, is a more accurate statement. Has been my experience. That doesn't make it a universal truth. <laughs> But my guess is if you were to ask other CMOs, even at, at, at much bigger companies that probably have possibly a longer lead time, I don't know. I think mm -hmm. it's, there's, it's probably always highly disruptive and you never quite have quite the time that you need to, to think through all these things. So I think it's always a balance. Mm. Uh, but starting as early as possible and the CMO should be involved as others and on the, on the leadership team, right? Uh, but certainly the CMO should have been involved at the very, very early stages of any acquisition conversations. Not only when it, the things are moving along and it looks like it looks like this deal is going to happen and it's it's warm and we think we're, both, both parties want to get married, right? Yeah. The CMO should be at the table when 
the two companies are starting to date. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it comes back to the to the age old point of marketing having a seat at the table, right? And I think in a lot of you know companies or that listen to this podcast, where perhaps they are building out the marketing function from scratch, it is important that you have someone, whether or not they have the CMO, doesn't doesn't it different depending on the company. But having someone who can represent marketing and make sure that these questions that you're talking about are being asked, whether it's through an acquisition, whether it's through a merger, whether it's through a product launch or whatever it is, have them in the room so that they can ensure that these questions are being asked and everyone is aligned. It will save you a lot of heartache by the sounds of things later down the road. Isabel, as we finish off the recording of this episode... Tell me, what do you think is going to be the biggest change in how B2B companies market themselves over the next five years? B2B companies market themselves. I think it's going to be, you're going to see a much greater appetite around data and intelligence. Again, to reclaim that control away from the the buyer. That might be a lot too harsh to phrase it that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It's it's about getting more intelligent around your decision making and using the information at your disposal to make the to, right to choices. Ultimately to, give the, to give the, ultimately, to give the buyer what they want, to create the experience that they want, to make you more effective at creating the experience that they want. You mentioned a stat earlier about 85% of the buying cycle, I think, is now not happening with in-person, in-person meetings. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was a great HBR article that came out a couple of days ago that talked talk to that point and how not so much about a marketing or a sales journey anymore. It's about the customer journey and how they engage and research brands is so different to what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. You need to make sure that, as you've said, you're using that information, that data across the platforms at your disposal to make sure you're getting in front of them at the right time in the right yeah, place. And I think and I think in that context we'll see certainly there's more and more conversation around product led growth. Mm-hmm. It's not a new concept but it seems to be having a I don't know a rebirth a bit, right? It's precisely because COVID has accelerated again this digital the digital interaction, right? Everything remote and so on. I think putting the product in the hands of the buyer very early in their journey and making that product experience really compelling. That's something I will see more and more. Isabel, for anyone who has listened to this episode and would like to get in touch with you or connect with you online, where can they find you? LinkedIn is the best place to find me. I'm usually uh, fairly quick to respond if you send me a message there. I will drop a link to your LinkedIn profile in the description of this episode. But otherwise, Isabel, thank you so much for walking us through how to manage an acquisition. Thank you. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why Remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. 
You get access to everything the remote offers from payroll to compliance to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week. This episode was sponsored by Remote.